companies that set out to change the world should stand for something, something that matters. For Tanium, it was managing and protecting the world's growing number of endpoints. Tanium empowers organizations to embrace digital transformation and change the way people both work and live. They help critical government agencies see what's coming, protect and defend five branches of the U.S. military, and more than half of the Fortune 100 rely on Tanium to manage and secure their critical assets. To learn more, visit Tanium.com. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiecki is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Gwilda Wiecki's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Science of Magic or endorsed in any manner by Gwilda Wiecki, Relmar McConnell Media Company, its affiliated networks, stations, or employees. Welcome to the Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiecka, a program dedicated to uncovering the unified nature of reality and humanity's ever-evolving place as truly galactic beings. For more information on the Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiecka, visit us online at www.thescienceofmagic.net. Welcome back to The Science of Magic, a program combining the science and magic of today's leading dilemmas to promote revolutionary thought and hopefully co-create new solutions. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. This hour, we'll be exploring Zen to get sane. I once asked my old Lakota teacher why he spent so much time alone in nature rather than with people. His answer, you have to isolate yourself from what not, is not true in order to find that which is. He was an amazing medicine man and healer. He told me that only the true voice of nature can heal a person by reminding them of who they are. But first, we have to shut up long enough to hear it. He also described modern society as inside out and backwards, and for the most part, totally crazy. Not understanding much of what he said at the time, I've spent the many years since his death contemplating his teachings. Watching the progression, or should I say regression, of society, I find I have to agree with him. Mostly we're staggering around in our madness. We unconsciously destroying everything in our path. A delusional race living in a distorted reality of our own making. The only way to see through the illusion is to stand apart, disengage, and align with life itself. How can we see past the collective delusion? Do the teachings of ancient traditions hold anything that can help us today? Why are the old teachings so enigmatic and hard to understand from our modern perspective? What can they tell us about how life really works? 
In order to further explore these mysteries, let's triangulate between the modern viewpoint, old teachings from a Lakota medicine man, and that of a Zen priest. With us this hour to hold up the Zen part of the equation is Brad Warner, the author of It Came from Beyond Zen, and numerous other titles including Don't Be a Jerk, Sit Down and Shut Up, and Hardcore Zen. A Soto Zen priest, he's a punk bassist, filmmaker, Japanese monster movie marketer, and a popular blogger based in Los Angeles. His website is hardcorezen.info. Brad, thanks for joining us on The Science of Magic. Thank you for having me. <laughs> the name of your book. <laughs> Let's start there. Yeah. Uh, do you want me to explain it? I'll try. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. Well, it, I, as your intro mentioned, I worked in the Japanese monster movie business for many years, and I'm a big fan of just that kind of cheap, low-budget science fiction film stuff. So that's obviously an influence. But the other thing it refers to is that Dogen, who is this 13th century Japanese Zen Buddhist monk and writer who I enjoy very much, he wrote a piece called Inmo, which Inmo is just a, 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 it's a Chinese word that he picked. He's Japanese, but he picked this Chinese word that just means kind of something or it. And he uses this word to refer to, to, to what I think a lot of mystical traditions would use the word God to refer to. It's kind of this, this sense that there is something which... Uh, holds together this universe and can be said to be, in a sense, intelligent and, and conscious. The reason I find this essay so fascinating is that in the Zen tradition, it's often presented when, when you read the Wikipedia entry on Zen. Actually, I don't know what that one says. But, you know, the, these kind of really basic introductions to Zen will often say, well, Zen is a religion without God and et cetera, et cetera. And it's true that there's no sort of creator god or, or this kind of mythological man in the sky character in the, in the Zen tradition or in the Buddhist tradition in general. But there is this idea, it, it isn't a materialistic uh, philosophy that says there's nothing out there. It says we're deeply connected with this thing, but this, this great something can't be named. And anyway, that's how I got to it. I, I, I translated, or, or I should say paraphrased, this essay in the book, and I gave it the title, It Came From Beyond Zen, because I just thought that was funny. That's yeah, too funny. It kind of reminds me of, it, it came from beneath the sink, or from yeah. the swamp. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah so, that kind of a thing. <laughs> so we're all on the same page. Let's start out with exactly what is Zen. Well, yeah, when people ask that, I usually default to a kind of historical answer, which may be sort of dry for people. You know, people want Zen is the plum tree in the garden. But historically <laughs> speaking, it's a movement within Buddhism that occurred about between 800 and 1,000 years after Buddha died. The, the movement that he started in India had spread out, but it had also become very religious. It had become kind of, it, it had grabbed onto a lot of other traditions that existed in the various areas that it went into. And people were doing a lot of ritual and a lot of other stuff that wasn't related to what the Buddha actually taught. He, he went around India basically teaching people to meditate. I mean, this is his main claim to fame. And by this time, a, a lot of Buddhists were not meditating at all. So the Zen 
tradition kind of came out of of northern India and China, where a lot of people said, "Well, let's get back to the roots of this. Let's let's just meditate. Let's make meditation our our main thing." Uh, and Zen is interesting in that it, it has to reinvent itself constantly in order to keep reminding people that no, this is that what we're really here to do is meditate. Uh, we're not here to do all this all this other stuff that that kind of gets stuck on to the meditation practice. So why are we here to meditate? Well, I think I think meditation is something that is necessary for human beings. I say this kind of, I, I'm, you, you can't see me on the radio, but I'm kind of, I say this with a little bit of a, a wry smile because I think people won't accept that. But, uh, but I think we really need to spend a certain amount of time every day just in, in total quiet, kind of like what your introduction said. And you, you don't really even need to go out in the woods or anything to do it. You can do it in your own place. But, but you need a practice I think to to kind of clear out your your mind at least a little bit from all the clutter that's gotten stuck in there over the past twenty four hours, and you and you um, you do this, and and I think we we need it more urgently now than ever because we are rapidly increasing our technological abilities to the point where we all have access to tremendous amounts of power. And if we don't use that power responsibly, we could really mess things up. And I, I, I really believe that the meditation practice can help you uncover what you truly want. Uh, this is something my teacher used to say. When you, when you do zazen, which is the type of meditation we do, you find out what you truly want. And, and, and what, what you, yeah, go ahead. And, and why is that important? Well, I think I think it's it's important because what you uncover is the interconnectedness of us all, and so you are less likely to follow the whims of your personal ego inclinations uh, when you discover that what makes you happy and what makes the world a better place are actually exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. and, and and then it becomes then it doesn't become People think you have to make an effort to 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 do good things, you know, or to or to be a, a decent person. But you find that it becomes kind of effortless because it's what you actually want to do. It seems to me, though, that we're taught to want things. We don't really know what we want. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, you know, it goes back to consumerism and um, subliminal messaging. And so, are you seeing um, meditation as a way around that? Yeah, because because I think what happens is you have desire is this one very interesting topic within Buddhism, and it probably could go on for hours about it. But you have you have a natural desires or natural inclinations. But what consumerism and materialism and these kind of philosophies do is they they take that and they tweak it into something that benefits somebody else financially, basically. And and you, you're right, we are taught very early on to follow that. But the natural inclinations of what we are kind of moving towards or what we want to do at any given moment are actually for the benefit of, of this greater collective. I mean, I, I probably sound crazy saying this, but I really, I, I found this to be true as I've kind of looked into myself over years and years of doing this. 
Well, it seems like human beings are the only ones that don't play that way. I mean, if you watch wolf packs or, or flocks of birds, I've got these birds, I, I filled the feeder and it had been empty for a while. And as soon as I fill it, eventually one of the breed will come and find it. But he won't eat. He'll just sit there and squawk until all his friends come and drain the feeder. Yeah. I mean, we see that everywhere. Why not in people? It's it's hard to say. I think we've gotten confused. I think I think one thing that probably this is just speculation, I suppose, but I think early in human history we discovered that the one thing we had going for us were these big brains. Like as as wild animals out in the African savanna, we don't have a lot of advantages. We're we're just we're food for lions and things. Except that we're in in a lot of ways more clever than those animals are. I mean, in some ways we're not, but but we can kind of band together and do things. And I think this kind of focus on what the brain can do initially led to great success for the human animal. But now it's it's become kind of twisted into a into a strange direction. And and Buddha noticed this 2,500 years ago, and, and he probably wasn't the first. Uh, it hasn't gotten any better this. since, right? Well, you know, this is this is an interesting question. I, I, I don't know. I think we're I think we're at a point of, of uneasy equilibrium. I do think things are getting are getting worse and getting weirder in some ways, and in other ways we're we're managing. And and I just say that based on the fact that we haven't blown ourselves up yet, you know. <laughs> And and I think that's actually a really positive sign. It was when I first encountered my the the teacher who ordained me in Japan. I was I was really kind of negative and morose about the world, and he was a, a he was a big optimist, and I and I thought that was annoying. But he eventually kind of won me over because he'd lived through World War II in Japan and things like that, and he could see things differently, uh, and and he believed that the world was actually getting better incrementally not quickly but, but <laughs> incrementally. by increments yeah well we're going to have to take a pause for a commercial break on the other side of this pause i'd like to talk about seeing the world differently and how that can serve us brad and i will return shortly so don't go away you're listening to the science of magic our current episodes are internationally broadcast and air daily through the exxon broadcast network xzbn.net the exxon is based in hamilton ontario canada in service to our listeners, prior innovative episodes can always be accessed free of charge on our website, thescienceofmagic.net. Do you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone radio show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone broadcast network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. 
Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. Our guest this hour is Brad Warner, the author of It Came From Beyond Zen, his website, hardcorezen.info. Brad, we were just getting into seeing the world differently. How can meditating or the Zen practice help us with that? Well, the the kind of meditation that we do in in the form of Zen that I studied is called Shikantaza, which is just a fancy Japanese way of saying just sitting. So the type of meditation that I teach and that I learned is, is goalless. So you're not trying to make anything happen. Uh, so, so even the goal of, of becoming a better person or changing the way you see reality or any of that just kind of goes out the window and you just try to get into the pure experience of, of simply sitting. And, and you'd think, I think most people, maybe uh, certainly even myself when I first heard of this, would think, well, what's going to happen then? It's, it's no better than just kind of lounging on your couch watching TV or something. But it, it actually is, is very different because you're, you're dropping every attempt to get away from what you actually are doing, which happens to be sitting still and, and staring at a wall. That's how we do it. And uh, by doing that, you start to encounter yourself in a very deep way. And, and eventually, th- this takes a while to get there, but eventually you start to see that what you thought of as yourself and what you thought of as everyone else and everything else, there isn't a barrier there. You, you, you kind of, if you're like me, you've gone your whole life thinking there was this insurmountable barrier between you and the rest of the world and that, that there was this eternal separation. But, but by looking into it without trying to do anything, you kind of encounter the, the fact that there, this barrier doesn't exist. And this, and this can change everything that, that you do in any encounter that you have, anything that you do <laughs> becomes it sounds, different. It sounds like you're um, letting go of the personal stories that compartmentalize your life. Well, sure. I mean, you, you have to. I mean, the, the interesting thing that happens, or non-interesting thing, a friend of mine who does this practice, who's a priest, t- said, it's sort of like chewing a piece of gum 
from which all the flavor is gone. You know, you, that that's the kind of feeling you get about your personal story when you're sitting zazen. Because at first, your your experience, most people's experience, is just kind of that personal story asserting itself and kind of making a lot of noise. But after a while, you realize it's only got like 15 things to say, and it just keeps going over and over on those. And you go, well, why am I listening to this? <laughs> you know, even though I've spent my whole life being really, really concerned about about this this personal self, you realize it's sort of boring and it doesn't really matter that much. And that that I found personally really freeing. How much of a, is our concept of of our personal self from our damage and conditioning? Oh, I think almost all of it, you know, you, you, it's that, I mean, they do in some forms of this, uh, of this practice, call it the conditioned self, you know, that's how they refer to it. And it, it is just your conditioning. It, it's just all of that stuff that's, that's happened to you as an individual being, because we don't, we don't deny that you as an individual being, me as an individual being exists, because that would be silly. But, but the question is, what is that? And how does it connect with everything else? And, and it seems to me that what it is, is, is a facet of a much larger project. I, I've tended to use this strange word project when I talk about this, because I kind of feel that's a, a one way of looking at it that maybe the universe is manifesting itself in this particular way as us uh, for a reason. And that reason will probably always be obscure to us as individuals. But I don't think that means it doesn't exist. I just think it means that the individual isn't capable of, of fully comprehending where this is all going, but but it is capable of accepting that it is going somewhere and that it might be good to kind of go along with where it's going rather than try to fight against it. It, 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 would, occur, it would appear to me mm -hmm. that this practice might be difficult for people that are extremely um, uh, compartmentalized due to damage because running into yourself may or may not be uh, a cheery thing at that point. Can you speak to that? Yeah, for sure. And I don't, I don't think it really, I think this goes for anybody who does it. There's a certain, um, in Christian meditation, they have this idea of the dark night of the soul. And there's somebody, oh gosh, I wish you could remember the name, but there's somebody I talked to who is investigating mindfulness practice and has this thing called the dark night project in which she is kind of looking at how <clears throat> people who do meditation practice will run into this. And one of the downsides that she's seen of the current mindfulness movement is that there's no methodology or no no tradition in there to deal with it whereas the zen tradition which is much older does have that so so everybody's going to encounter really ugly parts of themselves now depending on how deep that goes yeah the practice could be it could be anything from being incredibly uncomfortable to being positively terrifying. I've had moments of, of real terror in, in Zen practice. However, if you engage in it properly, there are, there are ways to deal with it. So, you know, it depends on the person. I've had people come to me who I've said, well, maybe you should talk to somebody else. But, uh, but in general, we do have uh, ways of, of dealing with a lot of the, the deeper things because everybody's got it 
you know, it, it's, it's, it, we've all got it. I mean, some arguably have it worse than others, but we do all have it. So would you mind describing some of those uh, methodologies to deal with, uh, with the ugliness when it comes up? Yeah, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's not really a sort of standard set of things. It's just, for example, in order to be ordained as a, uh, in the traditional style of a Zen priest, and I don't even like the word priest, but we leave that aside for a minute, um, you, you have to demonstrate to your teacher that you have undergone that process yourself. And, and it's not usually so much stated like, demonstrate to me that you've gone through the dark night of the soul. It's not something <laughs> your, your teacher is likely to say. But your teacher will, will see that because she or he has already been through that themselves. So, so they understand this. And, and so basically what I do is if somebody comes to me with that, I try to relate it to the, the darkness I've faced because I really believe there's a, a great commonality between human experience. We, we focus on the differences between individual experiences and that's okay. But what you find, I think, when you look at it more carefully is that is that these experiences are all kind of a, a com there's a common theme running through all of them and it's usually has to do with this this kind of sense of the individual self asserting itself against uh, the greater the greater whole and you know the the examples range from you know geez all, all over the map but uh, but it all kind of comes down to that and so you just kind of deal with it by talking. There's a tradition called Dokusan, which is just a, a private consultation we do. And and every time I run a tr retreat, I give everybody a, an opportunity to do this, and we just sit in a little room together and talk. But what I'm trying to do as this kind of facilitator of it is get out of the way and and find the place where the two of us in the room are meeting in a, in a common ground where we can kind of stand there and look at what surrounds us both and, and see what that is. So that, <laughs> that, that differs from therapy therapy, because you mentioned mm -hmm. that uh, sometimes somebody will come to you and you're going, yeah, maybe you need to be talking to somebody else. <laughs> Do you refer out well, not specifically. I mean, I don't have like a group of, of therapists or anybody uh, that are on call that I would deal with. But, you know, occasionally, on a rare occasion, uh, somebody seems to be having a, a difficulty that's that's kind of beyond what I can deal with. And and what it usually seems to me is it's not the difficulty itself. It's it's the way the person has learned to process it is is the problem usually because you can kind of you can kind of bounce back from almost anything if if you Jesus sounds crazy but if you if you kind of approach it the right way but yeah I, I have told people don't stop taking your meds and <laughs> yeah keep yeah. seeing your therapist <laughs> yeah yeah so there's this a lot of people think they want to find and kill their shadow would you yeah. speak to that yeah, I don't. I don't think that's the way to do it. I think the the shadow is is something we all have, and it 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 isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
it's it's just a thing it's it's the you know it's the other side of the coin and if you try to to root it out and and destroy it you may be destroying your own ability to get better it, it, it always makes me think of this star trek episode where captain I know, just Kirk, one. Yeah. yeah gets gets you know you know the one where he gets split into his good half and his bad half and he finds his good half is very amiable and works well with others but he can't do anything you know he's he's powerless and and i and i think whoever wrote that episode was very insightful and understood this basic thing that that shadow part of ourselves uh, is is actually a, a way into something better if you let it be. But if you if you keep pushing it away, uh, it actually lends power to it, and it, and it makes it uh, more evil than it than it actually is. How much do you think of viewing our shadow as evil has to do with guilt and shame rather than fact? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. It's, it's, it, you know, shame is a kind of an interesting thing in guilt because a little bit of it is helpful. And I think that's kind of obvious. You, you do something, you feel guilty about it. You go, oh, I better not do that thing again because that was bad. Uh, and, and, and I think that's about all you need. But I, I think what usually happens or what very often happens is that guilt becomes part of, of what we think we are. And we don't want to lose our guilt and our shame because we're afraid that if we if we let go of it, we'll stop being who who we are. But but what I've found in the practice that I do is that if you let go of it, you you're still exactly who you are. There's nothing there's nothing gone, and you still have the capacity to go. I better not do that again. But you you're not so kind of neurotic about it and, and feeling that you must constantly remind yourself of the bad thing that you did. You know, it's not it's not necessary after a while. You just just the fact that you know it is usually enough. Sounds like uh, it's a matter of self-trust then. In a way, yeah. It's it's well, this idea of self is kind of interesting in, in Buddhism, too, because we we kind of use the word self to refer to two things, which is the kind of individual ego-based image of who and what we are, in which we, in which traditionally Buddhists say there is no self. But then there's this other idea in Buddhism that sounds contradictory, which is is often referred to as big self, which is that there is there is we're, something that's we're going to have. We're going to have to dance with self, little self, and big self on the other side of another pause. Brad and I will return to our discussion on the other side of this break, so don't go away. We're coming to you through the Exxon Broadcast Network, where new and exciting things are always happening. Don't miss the other fine shows and hosts on xzbn.net. You're listening to The Science of Magic, your resource for creative solutions in a changing world, thescienceofmagic.net. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. 
For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back. This is the Science of Magic a place where magic and science come together to promote enlightenment. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiecka. We're speaking with Brad Warner, the author of It Came From Beyond Zen. His website, hardcorezen.info. Brad, we were going to talk about the little self, the big self, and ego. Yeah, this is a, this is a huge uh, thing. And, and, and one, of the, one of the kind of key questions that we ask ourselves in Zen is, who am I? You know, so we, have, we all have a an experience of, of reality. You know, I'm sitting in a, in an apartment in Los Angeles talking to you and you're up there in Ontario and it's warmer here probably. And so we have a slightly different experience. And so we, we extrapolate from that and say that I have a self and you have a self. But the, the, the question that comes up is whether there is a self which includes both you and I and all of the listeners and and everybody else. And collectively, I think, I don't know, the current thinking that I see going on in Western society is that, no, that's, that's not right. Everybody's an individual and we're all eternally separate. And we've kind of hoed that row for a few hundred years in, in Western society. But I think it's starting to break down as people... Uh, come together more, and we we realize that these these separations we feel are are kind of an illusion, even though it's a very very strong illusion. You know, we we really feel it's there, but it, it, you're kind of embracing two sides of a coin. One side is obviously there there are, for example, two different people having this this conversation together, and we can say that. But there's also a collective in which in which that dissolves and breaks down, and there aren't two people. There's just this one thing having one gigantic experience, uh, and and both sides I think are important to keep to keep juggling. You know, <laughs> this brings me to an interesting topic. Okay, mm-hmm. my teacher, who was a Lakota elder and shaman, he spent most of his time in alone in nature, and uh, Do- Dogen is that the way you say his name? Dogen. Dogen, thank you. Dogen was, for the most part, in a monastery. So how can the teachings of these masters that are so isolated apply to modern life? It's an interesting question because when I I look at Dogen, I I see that he 
had to separate himself from from general society to to get deeper into himself and it was necessary and if you look at the time and place that he lived you can see that it was a very violent japan in in the 1200s was probably worse than any third world nation you can think of today in terms of of just you know constant violence and constant warfare and and uh, uh, political disruption and so forth and and we do live in a in a somewhat different world. I mean, for all for all the whole weird things that were that are going on politically and socially, it's it is a bit more stable now, and we can we can find spaces to devote ourselves to to a practice within society. But it's it's difficult. It it requires a kind of a balancing act. And and I think it's still true that if you really, really want to go deeply into this stuff, that if that's what you, you mainly are concerned with in life, you are going to have to go off alone, at least for a while. Uh, the Zen tradition has a kind of a way to do that, which I think, I think makes it interesting. I think what Buddha, the Buddha's great innovation wasn't so much to come up with meditation. Other people have meditated before, but he came up with a way to do it as a group activity, which I think the society in his time and the society in our time need, and which just means you get a, a number of people together and they pick a spot and they meditate together and they agree not to get in each other's way during this, this very sort of personal, uh, raw individual practice that they're all doing. And and it's a difficult sort of thing to kind of make it work, uh, which is why in Zen temples there are really strict rules and there's a kind of a hierarchy even of, 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 of people. But the hierarchy isn't something you believe in as an eternal thing. You just accept it as part of making this group meditation stuff work. So I, I think there are different ways uh, to approach it. Uh, well, it's, it seems that there's a paradox here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, on one hand, yeah, there always is, darn it. On one hand, we're trying to unify with all that is, and we're having to isolate to do so. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's because the unification with all that is is our our background. It's it's always there. So it's not that you go off into the woods or into the monastery to to uh, to make that happen. Uh, you do it in order to kind of get away from some of the noise and things that interrupts your ability to to see that it's it's like silence this might sound like zen paradox silence is always there even in the midst of tremendous noise but it's harder to focus on silence during you know in the midst of tremendous noise and that's the simple reason for that is you're an animal you're a social animal and you are attuned to hearing what other members of your species are doing, and and that's part of how you stay safe and stay alive. So so it's very natural if you're in a noisy place to attend to the noise that's going around, which is why sometimes you have to find a very quiet place so that you don't need to focus so much of your attention on all that external noise. So is group meditation like a training so that you can do both? I think so, yeah. And I think the group meditation is is a really interesting thing because you think about the primitive society that 
that uh, the Buddha was dealing with, by our standards, would seem primitive. And just you know, having a bunch of people around helps you to to make things happen. But also, it's the the training is is that you learn, you you find this space, this silent space, and you realize that this silent space isn't something that happens out there in the in the woods or something that's a, a good place to find it or on the top of a mountain or whatever but you realize that it's going on all the time and and that you can find it any time that you need it uh, that's that's the great benefit and that's what you're actually training for is to come back to to who you are originally yeah yeah who you are originally and how you're you're connected to this great uh, intelligent silence or, or, or something. <laughs> so is there a, um, a degree of enlightenment that comes from that? Do we get information from those spaces? It's that's yeah, that's an interesting question because in, in Buddhism you have this story that goes right back to the beginnings where Buddha sat under a tree and experienced enlightenment and people kind of imagine that as some kind of uh, barrier that one crosses <clears throat> You know, and, and, and after which everything becomes different. And, and that is true. Uh, that, that does happen. But the enlightenment that you discover through this process isn't something newly created. It's something that was always there. So that's that's the tricky bit, and, and I think this is where a lot of people go wrong because they, they're looking for and, and I'm one of these people, I should say, before I even say this, we, we're looking for something outside of our ordinary experience because we think our ordinary experience is somehow mundane or unworthy or, or just kind of small and silly and that there's some greater thing going on beyond it. But what's really going on is that our so-called mundane and ordinary life is the enlightenment that we're seeking. And that's, that's part of what Zen keeps, what, what all the great Zen teachers keep saying. And it's so really it, a, yeah, difficult. So it kind of goes back to chop wood, carry water, but be present with whatever you're doing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And, and the chopping wood, carry water, uh, just to dovetail it around to my own work is, I, I think that's a great image. But on the other hand, how much of us you know, chopping wood and carrying water is not our everyday experience anymore in modern Western society. So I think one of the things that gets kind of lost when you're trying to talk about Zen is people get very into the great, you know, Asianness or Orientalness of, of the thing, you know, and it's, it's way over there. But, you know, chopping wood and carrying water is the same as doing the dishes and and making mac and cheese or something. Yeah, exactly. Like that. I mean, yeah. Whatever's ordinary for you, yeah. Right, right. But being present with whatever you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think is the greatest Western misconception of Zen? Oh, boy. I mean, there are so many. There's a few. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that it's this kind of chill-out thing. I mean, I, I've been kind of, over the past couple of years, collecting examples of weird uses of, of Zen there, there's a uh, in West Hollywood. There's a mar medical marijuana dispensary uh, that's that's <laughs> the Zen. You know, it's called Zen Collective or something. And they have billboards, you know, with this giant green Buddha. 
you know, and just going, well, you know, that's not exactly what we're getting at <laughs> in this practice. You know, it's not quite the same thing. You know, so so it's a serious practice, and and I don't, I actually don't mind when people make fun of it, and I I, I laugh at things like the Zen medical marijuana dispensary and the Zen nail salon and all the rest of it that you see around town. And and I think it's okay to make you know to 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 have a good time with it, but but it's also a very serious practice that that does take some work, and it's not just kind of chilling out, you know. What do you think is the most beneficial aspect for modern people of of the Zen practice? Well, I think it's just coming into contact with who you really are, because you you probably, if you're like me, you know, think you know who you are, but. But working in this practice, you find that what you thought you were is very superficial. It's like this kind of glaze on top that doesn't doesn't get to the real heart of, of who you are. And when you find that, you find that the heart of who you are and the heart of who everyone else is isn't isn't really different. And that and that you know, even your worst enemies or, or whoever, whatever example you can think of as, of as the worst person in the world, you have a common ground with that person. And, and I, I really believe, my optimistic side believes that, that if we can kind of work on that, uh, we might be able to get through this thing, this evolution <laughs> and human thing into something that uh, that's our actual birthright which i think is is much better than what's what we have now so that's another interesting topic that we're probably going to have to pick up on the other side of a break but let's get started evolution why are we evolving now you know i i don't know i i think i think something is is happening and and i'm i really kind of try to stay away from the kind of you know fluffy parts of, 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 of the way sometimes people depict this because but I but I do think it's correct that there's a positive change going on in, in humanity kind of bubbling under the surface and it's it's being it's being battered from all sides you know it's like this little bud that's trying to grow and, and everybody wants to stomp it out but I, well, but I think it is there it's time, it's time for that break, and we're going to look into what's something happening here on the other side of this commercial break. Before we pause, let me remind you to check out the amazing upcoming Galactic Shamanism classes for both children and adults on www.findyourpathhome.com. Brad and I will be back shortly to further discuss the magical world of Zen, so don't go away. This is the Science of Magic, your resource to altruistic professionals of science and the esoteric working to create common ground for the betterment of our world Join our email family to receive our amazing topic-driven episode collections at thescienceofmagic.net. The Earth is under ever-increasing pressure from untenable lifestyles and growing populations, yet viable answers seem in short supply. What if I told you there's an ancient form that can empower you to take charge of your life? What if your entire family could be enfolded and supported by life itself, finding safe passage through challenging times? I'm Gwilda Wiecka, founder and director of Path Home Shamanic Arts School with great news, an upcoming series of leading-edge online affordable classes based in an ancient form of shamanism easily learned and used by your entire family. 
Galactic Shamanism, Art of the Ancients, Key to Tomorrow are a series of online adult and children's lessons instructing your entire family on natural law, how to cooperate with and be supported by the powers of the universe. Visit findyourpathhome.com to find these unique and powerful classes. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. Welcome back, my friends. This is the Science of Magic, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I'm your host, Gwilda Wiaka. What's up in your world? I always love to hear from my listeners, so please email me at info at thescienceofmagic.net and suggest a topic or a guest that's on your mind. You're probably not the only one that would enjoy them. Our special guest this hour, speaking as people of service to the world, is Brad Warner, the author of It Came from Beyond Zen. His website, hardcorezen.info. Brad, we were just starting about talk about evolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was it's, was the conversation devolving or are we okay here? <laughs> no, I think I think it's an interesting question because you know you 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 can look at evolution in science and you can you can say something is happening. And and I think as as human beings we are moving towards something and and you know what evolution's end goal is is anybody's guess. You know, we used to think it was the perfection known as the human body or something like that, but I, I think that's kind of gone by the wayside that idea. But we we are kind of moving towards something, and and I I really I, I feel very positive about it and 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 very negative. You know, I, like I said earlier, I had this very dour negative side until I encountered my. The teacher who ordained me in Japan, who was very positive and upbeat, and even when you think about some of the horrific things he had to encounter in his life, he managed to to get through it. And I, I really think we are. I don't. I don't. I don't think we need. I think we need to be not too rosy about it, because, like I said, it's like this kind of little bud that's kind of popping out of the ground that that does need some protection and nurturing if it's going to actually happen. 
and and that there are a lot of forces arrayed against it. But but those forces arrayed against it are are not external to ourselves. I think that's that's one of the things we have to acknowledge because a lot of people sort of identify like the bad guys out there and we all you know we all know who who they are in our own lives and and think that the problem is there but but fail to acknowledge how we contribute to that and and I think that's the important thing is to kind of uh, understand that that we ourselves can also do great damage to this if we're not careful about it which brings us to another interesting point, compassion, which is, seems to be very prevalent in both Zen and shamanic practices. What can you tell us about compassion, Zen style? Yeah, uh, Dogen has this weird phrase that he uses. He, he, he wrote this essay called Kanon, and Kanon is the, the bodhisattva of compassion. It's sort of the embodiment of, of compassion. And it's not looked upon usually as an, something external. It's something that we possess. But he says that compassion is like a hand reaching for a pillow in the night, which I think is a. When I first encountered it, I was like, "What the heck does that mean? That doesn't make any sense." But he's 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 using this as a metaphor of something that happens spontaneously. You know, the hand reaching for the pillow is implying that we're asleep when it happens, so we're not even trying to do something. We're 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 just responding to the situation that exists, and and so. In that way, our compassion arises spontaneously according to the situation, and we don't really have to work at it. The only thing we have to work at is is getting out of the way of compassion. Is kind of allowing compassion to to happen. You know, when you feel the impulse to be compassionate, not to to stamp it out and say, "Oh, I got better things to do." You know, <laughs> you you. you respond to it and by responding to it you actually make your life a little bit better that's that's the interesting thing about it is is that compassionate action is never is never one-sided it's never just something you nice you do for something somebody else it's actually something nice you do for yourself uh, to be compassionate it seems our modern society often mistakes sympathy for compassion would you speak to that yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. But yeah, uh, well, you know, you just just kind of, I mean, it's very easy on social media to think that you go, I I feel for you. And that's and you've done your your bit for for compassion for the day. And, and that's not really it. You have to kind of actually go and and do something. Uh, but but it's it's again it's it's the spontaneous doing it's not really uh, most of the time if you try to be compassionate the the tendency will will be to go wrong with it so yeah it's it's a it's a tricky question it it seems like compassion is more of a a being than a doing would you would you clarify that please yeah i think i think you're right i think you you find the compassionate place within yourself and allow that to manifest as it will without without making anything happen, without saying what would a compassionate person do in this situation. Uh, I mean, a little of that can help, you know, if you're if you're really having trouble. But most of the time, the my, my teacher used to say this weird thing, which is the right answer is always apparent. And I would go, really? Because sometimes it seems to me like it's not. But, 
but working with the practice, I, I, I found that I, I think he's right. I think the right way to act in any situation is always apparent and is always available. It's just that we're very quick to make a lot of noise inside our heads and, and, and find ourselves doubting what we, what we know to be true at some level. So I, it would occur to me that it'd be pretty difficult to find the compassionate part that exists within within yourself if you compartmentalized in all your own stories and polarization. How do we find that place? Yeah, well, the only thing I've found that's worked is this practice of just, when you're doing Zazen practice, you're just kind of left alone with yourself and the wall that you're staring at, and things come up. And if you if you attend to whatever your mind brings up, you can drive yourself nutty. And, and you realize that you don't need to attend to it, so you just let it go. So each time your personal self, you know, kind of insists on being heard, rather than pushing it away, you just kind of let it happen and watch what happens when, when that occurs. And, and usually it's, it's nothing, you know, it's just like, I hate this right now, <laughs> you know. But you can just let it go, you just let that go. And enough of that habit and and then when you are encountering situations in the world you you already know how to let go of that stuff and get to what you really need to attend to which may be something quite different which brings us to what's the difference between true compassion and agenda yeah well it's hard I, I I think true compassion is what you what you initially respond to and in it you know this is this is where I kind of break ranks with some Buddhist organizations who 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 seem to think that compassion as an agenda is a good thing, and I I think that can that can so easily go wrong that you're best to kind of avoid it entirely and just not even try to be compassionate. I know that might sound terrible to to some people, but if you allow spontaneous compassion to arise, it doesn't become an agenda. You know, even often, often you can mask an, a personal agenda with the idea that you're being compassionate. But what you really want is the absolutely kind of reward, mm -hmm. you know? right? The right. likes that you're going to get on social media. You know, <laughs> there's always that, right? Yeah. Let's, let's sh we have a few minutes left here. I'd like to shift gears. You speak of the dream within the dream. What is that? Oh God, that's that's one of D Dogen's most difficult pieces, and that's why I left it to the end of the book. But he he has this interesting idea that on one level, our waking life can be seen as a kind of dream. Now we understand there's a difference between that and the dreams that we have when we go to bed at night. But on the other hand, we're putting together a picture of the world we exist in that may not be fully true. And one of the ways to deal with that is, is to first accept, just intellectually, that what you think is going on might not be what's going on. And accepting that intellectually kind of opens a door to accepting it experientially. So you just kind of uh, experience the world in, in its purest form and and then it shows its the dreamy quality of of the of the ideas you had about things start to show themselves for what 
or show itself for what it is that you that you're actually kind of putting together a scenario that might not be true <laughs> like i said it's one of dogan's most difficult essays and so we're creating the dream that's in the dream yeah yeah because he says he talks about uh ex- what is he explaining a dream within a dream is the original title of the essay something like that and and yeah he's saying that even his the the writing that he is doing in the in the this writing that you're reading when you read this essay is a process of explaining a dream to a dream uh and 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 thereby allowing the possibility of going beyond just the dream into something more actually real mm. Mm. You know, this This is a fascinating subject. Unfortunately, it's at the end of our episode. But yeah. dream, every tradition deals with life as a dream um, in one yeah. form or another. It just fascinates me. So I guess for people to find out more about Dogen, Dogen and his... Dogen. Dogen, thank you. And, <laughs> and his rendition of dream, they're just going to have to get your book, aren't they? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a go. good way to do it. Hey, thanks so much. It's hard to believe, but we are out of time. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Our guest this hour has been Brad Warner, the author of It Came From Beyond Zen and numerous other titles, including Don't Be a Jerk, Sit Down and Shut Up, and Hardcore Zen. His website, hardcorezen.info. This has been The Science of Magic. Join our email family to see all the wonderful new things we offer to support you on your personal path at thescienceofmagic.net. Until next time, dear ones, may you be blessed with knowledge and comforted with love as you align with life. Won't be